Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. Afternoon, Jim. Not too long since we did our last podcast, but there's so much to talk about. And we truncated that last one that we thought we'd do another one quite quickly. I've got a few things that I want to talk about, and I think you might be interested as well. One of the things that's caught my eye this week has been the controversy over Pascal Donahue's election expenses. And I think there is actually a lot to be said about that. Uh, One of the things I would say to you at the outset, Jim, is if we are going to discuss this, remember that certain political parties in Ireland are very litigious and that anything that we might say, uh, it could easily be referred to my learned friends. So let's stick to the facts rather than uh, giving too much voice to speculative material, if you know what I mean. Do you know what I mean, mate? I do indeed. Yeah, absolutely, Chris. Absolutely. Okay. On more uh, economic matters, there's stuff going on in the UK, of course, loads and loads of stuff going on in the UK that I think is worthy of discussion, not least the most recent economic data on retail sales and stuff that the Bank of England Governor Bailey has been talking about the end of the beginning or the beginning of the end using Churchillian language about the fight against inflation. Interesting stuff, as always, and quite often quite sad stuff coming out of Ukraine. But there's a couple of things going on there that I think is worthy of our attention. And of course, we haven't talked about markets for ages. They've had, with varying degrees of success, shall we say, uh, a, a storming start to the year. 
one of the key themes emerging out of markets this year has been the unpopularity of US equities. That's something that I hope that we get time to discuss. What's on your agenda, mate? I was interested in Philip Lane's interview with Martin Wolf in the Financial Times. Um, was hoping to discuss it in the last podcast, but didn't get around to it. Um, I was interested in the latest data from China during the week showing population decline. And um, Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand tickled my fancy as well in terms of what she's done in the last um, couple of days. So there's a, there's a lot there, sort of my agenda. Okay. Let's start with the controversy surrounding Pascal Donoghue's election expenses. Correct me if I'm wrong. I'm sitting here in the UK, so I may not have got the full story. There appears from an election long past to be some expenses that he failed to declare under Irish electoral expenses rules and regulations. It amounts to two substantive things, again, correct me if I'm wrong, which is uh, some raffle tickets that an individual uh, bought and therefore in a way supplied funds to to Pascal Donoghue's electoral campaign. The amount uh, doesn't appear to be more than a few hundred or a grand or two at most. And the, the other substantive thing appears to be a use of a van to put up electoral posters with some controversy around that and also the timing of those uh, poster placements. Somebody seems to have gotten upset about the fact that it was suggested it was done at night rather than at day. Have I missed anything out, Jim? No, that seems to be the story. Um, it would appear to be a relatively small amount of money, but I guess from Pascal Donoghue's perspective, it is worrying because this controversy has been going on for the last week. Um, and the more you explain, have to explain yourself, the more difficulty you're in. Um, l- looking at it um, objectively, it strikes me as a total waste of time to be focusing in on something like this, um, devoting parliamentary time, etc., to this, given all of the other significant problems facing us, particularly housing. That's really the only thing that should be discussed in the um, doll at the moment, in my view. But um, this is politics. And uh, clearly, there is somebody out there that is um, funding the investigation of politicians in Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael. You know, we've seen the revelations about Robert Troy, Damien English, and now Pascal Donoghue. Um, this is going to run and run. And I'm not for one moment defending um, mistakes or whatever that were made by certain people. And in the case of Damien English, you know, he blatantly failed to declare ownership of a property um, in a planning application. But so that's different, I guess, than what Pascal Donoghue um, is meant to be guilty of. But um, it just shows you how dirty politics is becoming here now. And um, that's the world, it, isn't it? Has it always been that way, Jim? I remember when um, the, the George Lee, uh, lately of RTE, uh, was elected as a TD and ran out of the place after about 10 minutes and I'm not sure we ever, we, we ever got a full explanation as to why he was so quickly put off Irish politics, but I suspect its dirty nature may have had something to do with it. But the the, the funding thing for Pascal Donoghue, uh, a number of things about it strike me about it. First of all, if the, if somebody's done something wrong and fesses up to it, fine. Then uh, 
you know, let the, and let the punishment fit the crime. And what is the size of the crime? Certainly, I don't think it meets any materiality tests. There may well have been the, the letter of the law broken and let the dice fall where they may on that. Uh, there are rules and regulations and presumably punishments and sanctions ranging from a slap on the wrists to whatever. And that process must be allowed to play out if the gentleman concerned has done something wrong. But, that, but it strikes me that the amounts involved are so trivial that uh, materiality issues are, are just or, or criteria would not be met here. But more generally, I, I, I think that we need, or the Irish media anyway, needs to step back and have a think about uh, just who is doing all of the criticism here. Have you ever heard of somebody called William E. Hampton? No, I can't say I have, Chris. Okay, two years ago, or maybe three years ago now, I think it was, um, Sinn Féin revealed that it received one and a half million pounds sterling from the will of an English recluse, William Oh, yes, indeed. Hampton. Yeah. Now, um, cash, the economist says that cash from that source has continued to flow to the party as Hampton's assets, as they are liquidated, uh, amounted at the time this article was written a little while ago to nearly three million quid. The Economist tells us who this rather eccentric recluse was. He was a retired mechanic with mental health problems who reportedly cut off his penis with a kitchen knife. He travelled to Ireland to make his will. When he did that, he actually registered of no fixed abode. But when he made that will, he had assets in Ireland, England, Singapore and New Zealand. And his will was made a month before the IRA ceasefire in 1997. So it receives funds perfectly legally from the estate of this eccentric gentleman. The hypocrisy, though, Jim, is that that kind of a donation, as I understand the rules, would be completely illegal in the Republic. But they're not illegal in the North because the border, which Sinn Féin wishes to eliminate, allows it to keep that vast donation. As The Economist said, party political gifts in the Republic are capped at two and a half thousand euros. I just think that it's amazing that that donation, plus lots of others from America in particular, are allowed in the North under their regulations and uh, would be uh, illegal or against the rules in the Republic. And I would have thought if if Sinn Féin wanted truly to be an all-Ireland party, it would hold itself to the same standard in both jurisdictions. And that if there were some kind of conflict, it would hold itself to the higher standard of the two sets of rules. It does have to operate, in fairness, in both jurisdictions. And it would, it should, the moral high ground here is surely to say we will accept the, um, the, which, which rules set the, the most stringent tests. They're here, they're playing both ends against the middle, accepting millions that wouldn't be legal in the Republic but are then criticising people for accepting small hundreds of, of euros. Do you, do you think I'm barking at the wrong tree here? No, I, I don't actually. Um, I, I, th- I think the point you make about that Sinn Féin donation is, you know, it's it's quite incredible that that could happen. Um, and I, I agree. I mean, Sinn Féin says it's an all-island party, has said it again. Um, I've heard it in the last week. Um, and that was in relation to um, Mary Lou Macdonald's refusal to take part in that um, summit. And um, Michelle O'Neill was representing um, Sinn Féin. But 
Mary Lou Macdonald was claiming it's an All Ireland party, so she should have been asked there as well. So you you can't be you can't be both things, and you know you assume they want to be an All Ireland party, so they have got to obey the rules um, to the highest standard, which is at the moment in the Republic. So yeah, I think there's there's a huge level of hypocrisy, but I I, I think. With the Pascal Donoghue situation, we're wasting an awful lot of time um, on a pretty trivial issue. Um, he did something wrong. He has apologized for that. Um, it's now it's now time to move on and focus on the big issues in the country. You know, this I, it, it sickens me. It's politics, and uh, I, I actually don't believe. I mean, in the case of George Lee. Um, the pressures there came from within his own party rather than outside of his party. And um, so I, I don't believe politics was as dirty then as it is now. I think it's now very sinister, but that's a, that's a global phenomenon. As I said earlier, uh, there is somebody out there funding um, the investigation of every politician in Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael. Um, you know, that, that, does represent a an attack on democracy. Um, and I'm not for one moment suggesting that there shouldn't be some level of accountability for politicians. They have to abide by certain standards. But uh, it doesn't strike me that what Pascal Donoghue is meant to be guilty of um, is in the least bit significant in the overall scheme of things. I might both agree and disagree with you that this is, first of all, agree with you that this is something that we shouldn't be talking about. There are much bigger issues but because Sinn Féin is making it a big issue, I think it behoves everybody in the media, even us with our tiny presence in the media, to try and examine it in the round and to, as I suggest, uh, argue and point out the hypocrisy. The Irish Times has, uh, I think last autumn, published an article about an opinion poll that was commissioned or paid for or both, I'm not quite sure which, by Sinn Féin that um, involved the spending of 7000 euros that it didn't report properly and uh, there was some controversy about that so that there have been spending issues or questions raised about Sinn Féin that particular one was whether that spending was declared by Sinn Féin or whether it was the Irish Times questioning it that caused the uh, spending to be to be declared what another thing to say about the, the the rules and of course they should never be broken whatever they are but the rules in Ireland are weird you probably know the name Carl Brophy. Yes, indeed. Um, I think he's CEO of something called Red Flag. Is that what Red you're Flag? Right? Yeah. And mm. uh, he he pointed out this morning that under the rules, you could be a barrister in Ireland theoretically. And he's not saying that this has happened, but in a tweet today, I think it was uh, put out that you could be a barrister in Ireland, give thousands of hours of your time to any political party, not receive any money for it, and then by sheer coincidence, later on, when that political party is elected to power, be given a judgeship. Um, no connection between your donation of time and the judgeship, of course. We wouldn't suggest any, any impropriety in that way. But under the rules, he, wouldn't have to, he or she wouldn't have to declare that work that they had done for, uh, for the party. So the, the rules are weird and possibly need looking at as well. But I do think that um, we probably have, have discussed this enough but the bit where I disagree with you, Jim, is I think that we need to play a role in, in exposing this. And we need to remind everybody that uh, just as this article I'm referring to in The Economist, which is a while ago now, talked about the leaflets that are handed out at dinners, dances and bars in Boston and New York and begin with the phrase, 
Dear friends, congratulations. You have been selected to end 800 years of British misrule in Ireland. That was NORAID, and uh, it, that has since been surpassed by an organization called the US Friends of Sinn Fein, which, according to this article, has raised more than 11 million pounds sterling. So, again, I, I think that uh, we need to have all of the facts in the public domain to enable everybody to make a judgment as to whether uh, what Pascal O'Donoghue has done amounts to a mortal or a venial sin, to use a very old-fashioned set of words. Uh, I don't know Pascal Donoghue. Um, I don't know him at all. I have actually met him once. I've seen him obviously perform on the political stage many, many times. I have shaken hands with him once. And I must say, on every interaction, whether it be remotely or in person, he has struck me as being a man of the highest, highest intelligence and integrity. So I'll leave it at that. I would totally agree with you on that. Um, I, I know him, I've met him, and uh, I would exactly reflect those feelings about him. Okay. Now, while we're on the subject of Sinn Féin, I don't know whether you saw, uh, there was an article, I may have been in the UK only edition, I'm not sure, the Sunday Times a week or so ago, with an interview with Mary Lou MacDonald. One of the things about that interview that struck me was the questioning about the United Ireland prospect of, as, as you might expect, and her attitude towards the financing of it. And I was reminded of a comment made by one of our uh, listeners on the podcast. I forget who it was. It may have been a chap called Sean. At least that's how he identifies himself. Made the very substantive point that Sinn Féin have never campaigned for a United Ireland, provided the UK pays for it. Their negotiating position, should it ever arise, that they're across the table from a British prime minister negotiating a United Ireland, and they say, well, we're going to unite Ireland now because we've had the border poll. Uh, will you pay for it, please? And I just can't imagine what the UK prime minister would say at that point. Well, actually, I can. And so I think that their negotiating position is going to be very weak because in this interview, she clearly indicated that she does expect the British to make a significant financial contribution post any reunification. Bizarrely, the one thing that she mentioned specifically about the financial contribution in this interview was about pensions. Now, I'm quite sure the British government will honour any state and or civil service pensions that it, that it has to pay it um, from a legacy perspective. But at the mo for example, if you imagined Mary McDonald sitting in front of Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, saying, yes, let's do United Ireland now, and that 15 million a year subvention, we'd like it to continue, please. Could, can you guess what they might say? <laughs> Absolutely, I can well guess. Anyway, let's, let's move on from, from perennially shinner bashing. We, we get quite a lot of comments on our website saying, would you ever stop with the shinner bashing? And my short answer is no, but we will stop for, for today. There's a number of stories um, that are building at the moment. You know, one is the ongoing um, correction in the global technology sector. Today, we have Google announcing 12,000 job layoffs, which is 6% of its global workforce. Uh, yesterday, we had Microsoft, 10,000 jobs, 5% of its workforce. This comes on top of companies like Meta, Meta Stripe, Amazon, Salesforce, so it's 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 an evolving story, and um, the 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 concern from Ireland's perspective, obviously, is that number one, some of those jobs will be impacted here, but number two, these job layoffs are reflecting pressure on profits in some of those companies, and of course, pressure on profits in those companies um, has direct implications for 
um, corporate tax take in this country. So it's 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 an ongoing story. It's 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 one to watch, and um, I, I sense now that this is a question of cascading. You know, once one or two companies step in and do it. The rest will follow suit. So I think we're going to see a lot more job layoffs there. And the question for Ireland is, you know, how much of that can we avoid? Inevitably, there will be some pressure. But I'm certainly picking up from within the recruitment industry that a lot of the jobs um, that are being lost in the big tech companies here, the workers are being picked up by other companies, including in the financial services sector and also smaller technology companies that couldn't compete with the bigger ones in recent times. So um, that's, and and today we see Netflix reporting its profits down 90%. So that whole global tech uh, bubble over the last couple of years is very definitely deflating at the moment. Yes, absolutely. And uh, it, it's clearly good news if those workers are being picked up. Uh, I sense that this particular uh, wobble for, for tech is nothing like the one that took place 23 years ago when it, the, the dot-com bubble burst in March 2000. Some of our readers and listeners will be too young to remember that. Uh, it is in a way sector-wide, and I think that's got an awful lot to do with the interest rate discussion that you and I have had many times. Uh, These kinds of companies, because of the the stock market valuations that they were on, they were on very rich valuations, are particularly affected by higher interest rates uh, for all sorts of technical reasons. So it was inevitable that their valuations would come down by more than the the rest of the market, actually. That's what has happened. They have... uh, a particular problem, as we've mentioned before, with advertising-based business models, companies that do rely on advertising, I think, are going to struggle in this this phase of the cycle. I don't know whether that's a permanent thing or not, but certainly because advertising spending is one of the things that all corporations cut during a cyclical downturn, anybody exposed to advertising revenues is going to be particularly badly hit. And so things like Twitter and Facebook do come to mind but companies like Apple and Microsoft don't. But all of these companies have, as well as these sector-wide problems, commonalities, if you like, they have very specific issues going on that sometimes are specific to the individual company and aren't relevant to others. Facebook betting the farm on the metaverse, for example, is specific to that company to the point where it changed its name. Apple's tribulations in China are kind of specific to that company, and so on. And so I think there's there's lots of things going on, but the but the sector as a whole won't experience the the dot com crisis that it had that took years and years and years to work through. There are clearly both cyclical and secular pressures on the sector that mean a couple of things, and I think that the the, the main one being is that the the era of very rapid growth both in terms of final demand for these companies' products, but in particular, the funding model that a lot of these companies have, particularly from a startup point of view, those days for now are over. So rapid, rapid growth has gone. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. 
no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Chris, can I ask you, uh, of the big tech companies that I, I've mentioned there and maybe any others out there, do, do you think there's a chance that in five years' time some of those won't be around? I think the answer to that question, the easy answer to that question is yes, there will be uh, destruction. But, you know, Jim, that's because there always are. If you look back longer than periods of five years to components of the stock market in the US, the UK, in Ireland, and companies go and companies come and they get bought, they get they go out of business. Uh, as I said, I don't think it's going to be as bad as the number of companies that went out of business back in uh, the, the years that followed 2000. Back then, there were companies that had no revenues, let alone any profits. So I think that uh, it won't be as bad as that. The biggest question mark at the moment is over Twitter, whether or not it can survive. It's got uh, an interest payment coming up, we think, at the end of this month on its debt. Elon Musk had to buy Twitter for $44 billion, and we think that that involved around $13 billion of debt uh, at an interest rate of about 12%, actually, quite eye-watering. So there's a lot of interest. We think between one and two billion coming due this year on that debt. Uh, Twitter's problem is that its revenues have fallen a lot as advertisers have deserted the platform because they're not very pleased with Mr. Musk's public profile and the sorts of things that he's done, flouting or having rows with regulators, putting Donald Trump back on the platform, that sort of thing. Elon Musk himself has told us that Twitter will have negative cash flow of about $6.5 billion this year, including interest payments, with only about $3 billion in revenues and $1 billion in cash, there's a $2.5 billion funding gap. So that's why people are asking all sorts of questions about whether or not Twitter can survive. For what it's worth, I think it will. I think he'll get some money from somewhere, if not his own pockets, because he's got more, he has got a few more Tesla shares to sell at much lower prices. He won't want to do that because Tesla, which he does still own a considerable chunk of, that fell 65% last year. So if he was to start selling Twitter shares again, which is already done to fund at least in part, if not all, the 26 billion he's put into Twitter. Twitter, he paid 44 for, 26 plus debt, plus some other funders. It's, it's said by analysts is now worth not 44 billion, but around 15 billion. So a company that's still worth 15 billion is still worth 15 billion. So it's not necessarily going to go under um, you'd have thought that somebody would be willing to buy it for a knockdown price, for example, should Musk sell it. it, it the case, I think an awful lot of Twitter advertising revenues would come back if Musk stopped being the CEO, for instance, and went away in some shape or form. So I think, yes, there are lots of questions about the survivability of Twitter. Even that company, I think, will survive in one form or another. I'm not 100% sure. Um, for the sake of everybody that works there, um, I hope it does. 
Um, but they, I think he's already fired half the workforce, hasn't he? He has indeed, yeah. Chris, moving away from technology, the, the other trend we see at the moment are um, investment banks experiencing difficulties. Goldman Sachs profits were down, I think, 66%. Uh, Deutsche Bank today has um, announced that it is not going to pay investment banker bonuses, um, or at least it's slashing them by 40%, uh, but it's going to continue to reward traders. It's clear that the global economic difficulties, rising interest rates, starting to have an impact on the financial service industry. It, 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 would you fear that that has a distance to go and that this could actually turn into a significant correction event for the equity markets? I turn the question back to you, Jim, and ask you what you think about the prospects for world economy are this year. If there's a deep recession coming, then traditional sources of revenues for these companies are also going to be under an awful lot of pressure. Companies like Deutsche Bank and Goldman Sachs make their money from various sources, share trading, just punting on the markets, taking commissions uh, and all the rest of it. And it, it, they're a bit, there's an analogy here with the tech companies, tech companies that have exposure to particular threatened, cyclically threatened form of revenue, advertising revenues. The extent to which they're going to be in trouble will depend in large part on the, the extent and length of the cyclical economic slowdown. Similarly, what happens to these bankers when the global economy turns down is that the number of shares that are traded on stock exchange goes down, their value goes down. So if they're taking a small cut of every trade on, on commission and things like that or spreads, their revenues go down. So they're very cyclical companies. The reason why there is also a read across from the tech space is that not just as with tech, not all of these companies are the same. They have diff, they either have these very exposed revenue sources or they have very diversified revenue sources. Goldman Sachs is very exposed to the global economic cycle via the number of shares traded, via those spreads and commissions, but also from things called um, mergers and acquisitions. When the global economy turns down, companies typically don't buy each other. And therefore, the fees, the massive fees that are generated when two companies merge or buy each other, uh, companies like Goldman Sachs really make large amounts of money. And deal flow really, really slowed down last year. Uh, and there are other sources of revenue like the issuance of new equity, the issuance of new bonds. These things take a hit. So if you told me that the world economy was in deep, deep trouble, I would say these uh, companies for the short period are in deep trouble. But there are companies like Morgan Stanley, for example, who reported these headwinds last year, another global investment bank. But it, it has done a much better job of diversifying its revenues than Goldman Sachs has. Goldman Sachs has tried to diversify its revenues into, for example, consumer and retail banking, something called Marcus. Was some, it set up a few years ago. Well, that, is not, that has been a cash drain. That hasn't clearly been as successful as they hoped it would in terms of diversifying its revenues. So for a given dollar of profit that Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs makes, uh, the, the market investors place a higher value on Morgan Stanley's dollar of profits than it does on Goldman's because they're more stable and more predictable. And Goldman's would like to be more like Morgan Stanley, but so far has failed. So I don't think any of these companies are necessarily going to go under, but I do think that some of them are clearly in some short-term difficulties. There are particular difficulties associated with one or two European banks Credit Suisse comes to mind. Their difficulties have been very well publicized, but they're very specific to that company. Again, that's a comment I made about the tech sector as well. 
Deutsche has been in difficulty for a long time now. I still think needs an awful lot of sorting out. It, again, it's not threatened. You know, in, its existence is not threatened, but it, it clearly is still in major need of uh, rethinking and reconstruction. Chris, m- moving on, um, I mentioned in your introduction that um, a story that interested me this week was the surprise resignation of the Prime Minister of New Zealand, Jacinta Ardern. Uh, she's been in office since 2017. She represents the Labour Party and it is currently polling at the lowest level since the election in 2017. Um, and there's an election due on, on October 14th of this year. And her lack of popularity is being attributed to inflation, rising interest rates, rising crime and falling house prices. And having been the hero during the COVID period and for a little bit thereafter, um, she certainly has lost a lot of popularity. And her view is that she's now leaving politics because she hasn't the energy to keep doing it. And she said she would be doing a grave disservice to New Zealand. Um, I guess there's two ways of um, anticipating that, or sorry, of interpreting that. One is that it's an admission of political failure. Secondly, it's making a decision um, that very few politicians make to get out at the right time because every political career ultimately ends in failure. Um, she seems to be preempting that and is 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 getting out before um, things get worse for her. Were you surprised? Yeah, I was actually because I know how um, popular she has been in New Zealand. I'm aware that she, her standing in the opinion polls, her, her party standing in the opinion polls has fallen and her own individual popularity rating has fallen. So that there are two possible explanations, as as you say, Jim. One is that she was getting out ahead of a defeat in an election. I think that's the cynic's interpretation. Uh, I would choose, from from what I've seen, I'm not no expert on New Zealand politics, but I would choose to believe that that her, her words, which are that she's, she has very little left in the tank now and that the time has come for somebody else to, to take over, uh, whether, whether one agrees or disagrees with the policies that she has pursued, particularly with COVID, but also other policies as well, I think she's a politician of integrity. And I do think that she has genuinely believed what, the sorts of things that she has done. And I think she's a truth teller. Uh, so um, I would give her the benefit of the doubt and say that she's getting out while she thinks because she thinks it's the most uh, opportune time to do so for her for personal reasons rather than nakedly political ones. I, I I just think it's interesting because um, she was one of the few left wing politicians I think to succeed over the last four or five years in an environment where right wing extreme governments were um, gaining the upper hand in many countries. Trump being the obvious example. Um, m- moving across the well, not too far from New Zealand, in fact, to China, um, the statistical agency in China. Um, published data this week showing that last year the population fell by 850,000 to 1.4118 billion. This is, the well, reportedly, it is the first time since 1961 that the population has declined. And that was the year when Mao's Great Famine was in full flow. And, and India is now probably has overtaken China in terms of population. The Implications of this for China are obviously significant in the sense that, you know, aging populations imply increased spending on healthcare, 
um, on pensions. And of course, you have less younger workers um, supporting more older workers and so on, because declining population is um, it, it does. It is happening because of an aging population. Do, do you read much into this or? Yeah, I saw Paul Krugman's piece on this in the New York Times the other day, which he said it's big, big news for all of us. And, you know, there is that age old cliche, demography is destiny. And like a lot of cliches, it actually contains quite a bit of truth. There's the caveat that nobody really knows anything about Chinese uh, statistics, be they about the economy or indeed population. And some people think that China's population may have been falling for some time, actually. Uh, but it, it it does have economic ramifications because that means that China's growth rate will be lower than would otherwise have been the case. Any country's growth rate is a simple sum of productivity growth plus population growth. If you want per capita uh, economic growth, then you just focus on productivity growth per, per head. China's been an important part of the world economy. So if a source of growth, its population growth is going, then that has clear economic implications. The political and social implications for China itself will have ramifications elsewhere. What does this mean for the Chinese Communist Party? And there's been lots of speculation. Lots of different people have written pieces about this saying that uh, none of it feels good. Uh, It could cause them to become even more authoritarian. The surveillance state uh, will become more of a surveillance state and and all the rest of it. But in terms of relativities, it also has implications for countries like India, whose population still is growing very rapidly. And indeed, uh, the continent of Africa. Uh, A lot of people think that the the world population, given current trends, which can always change, of course, uh, world population is going to be dominated by India and Africa over the coming century uh, or two. And that also will have huge economic as well as social implications. So, yeah, I I think that there will be lots and lots of things that will flow from China's demographic shrinking. A lot will depend, as Krugman said, on how they handled it, because Japan has had a falling population for some time now, and they're handling things relatively well, at least from a narrow economic sense. Their per capita GDP is actually holding up very well. We know that the Japanese economy isn't growing very much, partly because or mostly because of the demographic decline. But GDP per head is holding up quite well. And relative to other countries, it's, it's holding up quite well. And that's because of the policies that the Japanese government pursue. Uh, whether or not China is able to do this, I think is an open question. And I sense that Paul Krugman had his doubts, to be honest. And frankly, so do I. I don't think that the iron fist of control being wielded by Xi Jinping is sustainable in the longer term. I think something will crack Either he will be replaced or the population will rebel or some combination of the two. I know there's very few signs of that at the moment. Maybe there were a few rebellion signs during the latter days of zero COVID. But the Chinese Communist Party does exert a very tight grip. And ultimately, as we've seen with tight communist grips on countries historically, that usually comes to an end. The last time I looked at UN population projections, the suggestion was that roughly 50% of global population growth out to 2050 would come from countries that are could be described as underdeveloped countries. So, and, and a lot of those are in Africa. And the, the challenge, of course, is can those countries absorb that sort of population growth without creating serious social and economic problems. And um, 
you know, w- one of the possible implications of that is that the whole migration thing is going to become a much, much bigger issue. And of course, that could be exacerbated by climate driven migration as well. So I, I think that's going to be a massive political challenge over the coming years. But it's it's also interesting, I believe Janet Yellen was in Africa during the week and uh, China has dominated investment in Africa in recent years. There's a suggestion that the Chinese may be backing away a little bit from that. And is is there a possibility that the US is now going to move into Africa and start buying cheap buying up cheap assets because it recognizes this population growth, this population or this potential for strong economic growth at some stage. I think a lot of that involves big, big strategic thinking. And I don't think there are too many countries in Europe that are involved in deep strategic thinking at the moment. Ironically, the the deep strategic thinkers uh, tend to be totalitarian. You may not like their strategy, but they do have a long-term one. And the other big strategic thinker out there is clearly Joe Biden. And uh, we know that he's in a little bit of local difficulty at the moment. But big strategic leadership, uh, yeah, it's in the big countries. Uh, Unfortunately, it's lacking here in Europe. But our relationship with Africa over the next century or two is going to be very, very important strategically. I I suspect on the basis of recent history, we're not going to handle it well here in Europe, at least. The final uh, topic I'd like to discuss quickly is Philip Lane's interview in the Financial Times. Um, As you know, this time last year, Philip Lane, as chief economist of the European Central Bank, was very much in the inflation being transitory camp. And uh, he certainly didn't believe at that stage that interest rates would have to rise by very much, if at all, um, in response to this transient inflation problem. Clearly, history has proved him wrong in the sense that the European Central Bank has taken rates from zero in July to 2.5% at the moment, with further interest rate increases to come over the coming months. In the, in this interview, which Martin Wolf conducted, he he was trying to defend what the European Central Bank is doing in terms of interest rates. He, he has argued that he doesn't believe that loose monetary policy was responsible for the inflation problem we're seeing at the moment because he cites five years of low interest rates and no inflation as evidence of that. But I think the, the more important thing was Martin Wolf challenged him on you know increasing interest rates in an environment where excessive demand isn't the problem. And he went into a sort of a convoluted explanation about the impact COVID had on initially switching the demand to goods, causing goods inflation. And then post-COVID, there's been a switch of demand to services, uh, which is causing service sector inflation. I, I didn't find those arguments terribly compelling. And it's he struck me as a guy um, who was trying to explain a policy that has been imposed upon him by the ECB's board uh, that he's not terribly happy with. Maybe it's an incorrect interpretation from me, but um, I think, if you go back a year and look at what all of the world's major central banks were saying about the likely outcome for inflation and interest rates in 2022, they, like a lot of us, couldn't have got it more wrong. I think that when they come out today with equally certain remarks about where inflation and interest rates will go in 2023, we should greet it with, I think, justified scepticism. The point is, I don't think we know and I don't think they do either. A lot of it is so contingent. 
on whether energy prices continue to fall or at least stabilize at current levels. If they shot up again, we would be in inflation and interest rate trouble. Um, if energy prices continue to go down, then yippee, we're off to the races. Equally, the economic outlook that I spoke about in the context of banking, in the context of tech companies, that's going to determine what central banks do. And their forecasts, there is probably better than other people's forecasts, but they're still going to be wrong. And it's the, the extent to which they're wrong. They will react to the data. Uh, they are not as forward-looking as they claim to be. And when they make these prognostications about the future, I think a little bit more humility would actually be in order. What Philip Lane is getting at, I think, is, is precisely that, which is that let's be careful about where we think everything is going. He will notice his boss, Christine Lagarde, making all sorts of comments at the moment about how interest rates have still got to go up an awful lot further for longer. And I think he's what he's trying to say, and as you say, Jim, that might be a bit clumsy the way he's saying it. He's just saying, let's, be, let's have a wee bit of humility here. We've gotten it so wrong in the past. The ECB in particular has a long track record of getting it wrong, not just last year, but in previous years as well particularly at big turning points. So I think he's just saying, let's be humble about this. We don't know enough about the economy to be able to be sure about what we're going to do, and we're going to react to the data. And I expect somebody has told him, you can't say that. And so he's coming up with these convoluted stories that uh, confuse as much as they clarify. That's my take on it, Jim. Okay, I'm. I suppose from the perspective of listeners who are worried about interest rates, there was an, an interesting comment as well in that interview about um, the, the. He's sort of suggesting that at two and a half percent, this is pretty much the neutral rate of interest rates, uh, but they need to be raised further because he doesn't believe that rates are yet at a situation where uh, the risks become two sided. In other words. Um, is there a danger we go too much or too little? He doesn't believe we're there yet. So clumsy way of putting it again, I think. But my interpretation of that would be that he's going to take rates or the ECB is going to take rates up another 1% over the next um, four or five months. And at that stage at 3.5%, they'll sit back and see just what the economy and inflation are doing at that stage before making any decisions on whether the next move in rates would be up or down. But I suppose from a consumer perspective, from a business perspective, I think the safest assumption to make at this stage in terms of assessing risk is that rates will go up another 1% um, in the first half of 2023. Famous last words, Chris. Yeah, well, on that cheerful note, Jim, or, or, or not so cheerful if you are a mortgage holder, I think we should probably call it. And uh, thanks for another great discussion. Speak to you next time. Super, Chris. Thank you. Bye. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power. On the other hand, we hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and other good podcast platforms. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. 
because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns, so you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.